Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Here's the 40th episode of my monthly feature, Our Voices, an in-depth look into unique lives and journeys you may find quite unexpected. We'll discuss ways to inspire and enact social change that level the playing field and help everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with an open mind to this account of what it means to grow up, struggle, learn, work, and live in our world. My guest is a superstar. CEO of The Conversation Strategist, she moderates global conversations with the intent of generating actual results. Her hard-hitting questions and deep empathy have made her the go-to moderator for presidential and other high-level panels for groups including the World Bank, International Monetary Fund, International Labor Organization, United Nations, and African Union. She was recognized as one of the top 100 most influential young Africans in 2019. Before her current position, she was an award-winning journalist at CNBC Africa, where she honed the skills that later helped her to be a highly sought-after moderator. During this time, she worked with the Presidency in South Africa, Mumlambo Foundation, and Tata Africa. She lends her leadership to multiple boards as well. I'm delighted to welcome leading conversation strategist, Nozi Poshavala. Nozi, welcome to Our Voices. (laughs) Thank you so much. That was a fantastic take on the name, Molly. Uh, thank you very much for having me, and I'm really excited uh, to reconnect with you again. It's really the delight is mine, and my heart is just so warm seeing you, my friend, because we're grateful to the International Women's Forum, which is how we cross paths. Um, you are one of 40 of the most extraordinary uh, leaders in this uh, very unique Leadership Fellows Program. So a few thoughts for our listeners from you about your first weeks in the cohort. Yeah, it's been absolutely fantastic. Um, And having been part of other fellowship programs, this has absolutely been a standout for me. Um, First of all, just the caliber of women that I find myself surrounded by is absolutely jaw-dropping for me. And so it was an experience that was rich, not only just in terms of the content and the actual leadership training, but just the conversations with these accomplished women um, are really, really stretching because they almost invite and force you to ask yourself questions about what's your next um, and how are you going to be an agent of change in your space? And you begin to realize that um, you have a community of people who are so open to sharing how to. And I think that's probably the way that I would capture that first week. And I'm so excited that we get to journey a little longer together, uh, looking forward to INSEAD, to our time at Harvard Business School, but more than anything else, I'm looking forward to lifelong friendships. Yeah, it's so, so, so it warms the heart and it's so inspiring. I am curious, it's been a short while. Is there a particular epiphany about your own self that you've had? I think coming back, um, I was so surprised by the number of people who reached out and gave me feedback about being really inspired by the way I frame things uh, that I communicate, the way I seem to have a very um, 
very intentional selection of language and words and in fact asking me to host a couple of training sessions for the broader cohort which I've accepted to do and I think that is typically because sometimes when you are gifted with something you don't always realize the value of that gift in your hands because for you it's the same thing as breathing and yes I've had the opportunity to um, hone the skill in different ways whether it's through broadcasting or whether it's, you know, working in corporate comms. But I think every time I reflect on what is the one thing that I was born with um, that is in, is part of my DNA, and I think it's the ability to not only articulate myself, but how to simplify ideas so that more and more people can access uh, that piece of communication. So I was really surprised to get all of that feedback. And I suppose it was just feedback to me to say, you're doing, you're doing great. And um, when you hear it from that community, it's really humbling. Yeah, that is so wonderful. I'm not surprised. I think that, you know, master at conversation, master at simplifying ideas. I love that it's uh, a superpower for you. And it's also so gratifying for me when you see people who are in the sweet spot of what they just excel at and able to share that gift for the world, you know, because you just want everyone to have that. It's just the best. Um, so I'm yeah. thrilled you're, you're really helping others in this way. Um, you know, I'm in awe of you. Um, and you've, uh, you've done a lot to, to deliver real results with your work. Um, this however, is not, um, what you may have envisioned in your remarkable young journey to date, my friend. So I'm really, Really mm. grateful for you to kind of go back, um, take us through your youth, your life, um, and the journey to being who you are today. Oh, thank you. I think that's a, a beautiful invitation. So I always uh, really go back to my very first memory, um, which is not a pleasant memory. I, my first memory was of um, singing onto my father's back because we were fleeing. Um, our home that had been torched with fire. And what was happening is at that time in my country, South Africa, is that we were in the throes of conflict to find democracy and to find each other. So this um, was in the late um, 80s, early 90s, where I have that memory. Um, and it really has set the scene really for what I would describe as the conversation of my life. Um, my parents were... Um, uneducated. I come from very humble beginnings. Um, I always say that I'm not a fan of parading poverty, but I do believe that, uh, you know, it, it's an important part of the story. My mother was a street vendor, uh, and that meant that she was selling um, fruits and other uh, things at the side of the streets to get us through uh, school and to feed us. My father was a security guard. And so I grew up very clear in my mind that um, one, we lacked, but two, and most importantly, that my mission in life was going to be about creating a huge distance for, between where I'm starting and where I'm going to end up. And, and so it was always a motivation. My humble beginnings were a motivation for me and a driving fuel uh, to really go after the things that I've wanted to do. Um, I, I then uh, had the opportunity to when democracy finally came around in 1994 and Nelson Mandela became the president of South Africa, 
I was 10 years old at that time. And what that meant for me is that I suddenly had the opportunity to go to the best schools that the country had to offer. Um, and that meant I was able to access schools that had been previously reserved for white children only. But in terms of the funding for that, um, it also meant that I watched my parents roll up their sleeves and work really hard to make sure that I and my siblings were able to access those schools. And so when I reflect on my life today, I know where my work ethic comes from. I saw it. I lived it. Um, I, and I valued it uh, from my parents. I was really lucky to then get to the best schools. When I got to a university, I had to uh, choose, um, you know, what it is that I was going to study. And I remember that my decision was based on two criteria. One, what was the cheapest thing to study in the prospectus? And secondly, what was the thing I could do the fastest so that I wouldn't be an additional financial burden to my parents? Um, and that's how I ended up studying political sciences um, and it's so strange because now that I think about the work that I do, I rely so much uh, on my political training and my political acumen. Um, and so I feel to a certain extent that it was definitely destined to be. Um, every step of my journey has been ordered um, and it was intended to be this way. So I studied political sciences. I then majored in international relations. I had the opportunity then uh, to get my first job, and this was working in the office of the vice president uh, of the country. Um, many might know her, Dr. Pumzilem Lambonguka. She went on to become the executive director of UN Women um, based in New York, but she was my direct and first mentor uh, who made it her mission that I would not only have the experience of seeing the world, uh, but I'd have the experience of being around leaders of excellence and that they would set the bar for me. And that's exactly what she did. Um, and so while I was working with her, I really made some amazing leaders in her office who took it upon themselves to be my extra bosses. So I was accountable to a lot of people, but I think it did. It was great because I then always knew that the bar was high and I needed to really show up strongly. I, I got a scholarship. I went abroad to go study. I mean, I'm the first person in my family to have completed university um, or got to university first to complete university and certainly the first to have studied outside of the country. So I went and I studied at SOAS at the University of London. And I decided that at that time I was going to become a diplomat and an ambassador to my country. So, you know, I, I did a master's in international studies and diplomacy. Um, and again, I, I think about that decision today and I'm like, my goodness, I don't think I could do what I do today without being a diplomat. It's almost as if I needed to be trained to be a diplomat, to be able to understand different worldviews, to be able to create pathways for people to find each other through conversation um, and to allow people to feel heard and seen in conversation. And for me, I think that sounds like the definition of diplomacy. Um, and so I relied on that quite a lot as part of my journey. I came back into the country, and that's when I had the opportunity then to go and head up uh, Umlambo Foundation, which was the, the former vice president's uh, leadership foundation um, after she had resigned from office. And that's where I learned a lot about leadership um, and the education system in particular. And that's because we were working with school principals in underperforming rural schools and helping them to see themselves as 
CEOs of uh, the school, which was their entity, and having to derive and deliver value for their shareholders, which was the learners and the families and the communities. And that was probably one of the most um, really satisfying parts of my journey, to be able to see a leader begin to see themselves differently and therefore behave differently and seeing how that behavior impacts on the results that that school then produces um, and being able to point to that and say, I was a part of that team that created that was really, really super special. But as any young person, I started to get the itch and my itch was, I want private sector experience. Everybody seems to be um, having an MBA and having big titles in the private sector. Um, and I've only worked in government and I've only worked in civil society. So off I went uh, interviewing um, at all the big uh, listed companies in South Africa. And the most humbling part of my professional journey came with all the no's I was getting. And the feedback I kept getting was, you're absolutely great. You're so articulate, but you don't actually have an MBA, do you? Or you don't really have a journalism degree, do you? And uh, today I still don't have an MBA and I still don't have a journalism degree despite uh, being an award-winning broadcaster. But it was interesting to firstly get that grounding back to center because I was young. I was already overly accomplished and I think I might have had a chip or three on my shoulder at that time. And eventually I got a job from the chairman of Tata So if you remember, the Tata Group is, I think, about the fifth biggest conglomerate in the world, India-based, but they've been investing in Africa for a very long time. And he said to me, oh, a little birdie told me that you're looking for a job, and I couldn't believe that somebody like you is in the market. And so I said, oh, okay, so do you have a job for me? And he said, actually, I don't. But what I do want to do is invite you to come into the business, spend two months, and then you tell me what job you want and we'll create that job for you. So it was such a beautiful invitation. I got to really visit all the offices, understand what some of the key issues were. And then I came back to him. And again, still, I think with that boastful youthfulness, I said to him, "I, I think I know what I'm going to do. I think it's a little bit of a long title. So he said to me, look, if it can fit on the business card, you can have it. So what is it? I said, I would like to be the head of corporate communications and branding for Africa. And he said, it's going to be a big business card, but um, let's see what you can do with that. And it was the most incredible experience because my job was to do two things. One, to make sure that we were communicating to the world and especially to African investors that the Tata Group had been invested in Africa for a very long time. So when that Economist cover that many might remember that had the the, the title Africa Rising and talking about the investment opportunity in Africa, we were saying, that's great, but we've been here for 50 odd years. So we're your natural partner. And then the second piece of my job um, was to make sure that um, as the Tata Group bought Jaguar Land Rover, Nobody would make the association that Jaguar Land Rover was now owned by an Indian company because of the connotations and brand associations that would come with that. And so every time I I hear somebody today who's not aware that the Tata Group owns Jaguar Land Rover, I go, yes, I did my job. Um, You know, that that really means we did a good job. But that was an incredible experience. Um, And to get to 
took it and how it lends me to where I am now. It was an incredible experience because one of the things I did is that I commissioned CNBC Africa to, to shoot a documentary to tell the Tata story in Africa. And so once we had gone around the, the continent, um, you know, shooting all of that content and the producers had put it together and just as it was about to go on air the next day, they called me and they said, you know, this thing is just missing, you know, maybe the voice of a young African woman who can talk about the future of the Tata brand. Do you think you could do something? And I said, well, I'm not really sure what you want me to say. And I said, no, we'll write it down. You get... Um, you get signed off from your boss that it's okay. So that's what I did. And my boss said, you know, go ahead and do it. Of course, I called my mother and she then galvanized the entire community to come and watch me say something for 15 seconds at the very end of a two-hour documentary that was far too technical and business-like for, for them. But it was my first time on TV. And um, two weeks after that, that 15 seconds, I got a call from CNBC and they said, we love the way you tell stories. We love the input that you gave the team. Uh, we love how you led them to really capturing the right things. Um, would you like to be an anchor on CNBC Africa? And I said, you have lost your mind. I don't know the first thing about television. I don't know the first thing about financial markets and, and trades and stocks because that's what the platform is all about. Uh, and they said, well, you, we know that, um, but we also know what you do have. And so can you bring what you do have and we'll help you build the rest of it? And I said, okay, let's do this. So I jumped and I joined the world of broadcasting. I did a second master's at this time in uh, part-time and this time in development finance uh, because I really felt that I needed the, the, you know, the ability to really get into the conversations with the CEOs that I was interviewing about their financial results and about what their companies were doing on the continent. But this is where I think I learned and, and really mastered the ability to be economical with my words, how to say something concisely in the shortest period of time possible with high impact and in a way that really visually describes what it is to the person listening to me. Because, you know, as you, you would know, on television, the producer's talking to your ear and they're saying to you, 30 seconds to break, you know, so you know that whatever it is, you've got to fit it into 30 seconds and you need to look amazing while you do it. Um, and so that's how I landed in television. And it was while I was at CNBC Africa doing my television that somebody said to me, we've noticed that there's this particular show that you do where it's, you're sitting in the studio in Johannesburg, but you're in conversation with the guest in East Africa, in West Africa, and another guest in Southern Africa, that thing that you do in that show, do you think you could do that in front of a live audience? And I said, well, we can try it. And I did it once. And the very first time I moderated live, I knew in the pit of my belly that I had found the thing I was supposed to do. And it might not be the last thing that I do, but it certainly was a thing I knew I had to go and do. And so initially I tried to deny the calling and sort of like kept my day job and then would only go and moderate when I'd be invited. Um, and, and eventually the momentum around uh, my, my offering was so great that I couldn't keep my day job. So I quit television, I set up a business and this is the business that today 
allows me to moderate conversations around the world. And, and so I also had to come up with a, a name for what I do because I felt that moderator wasn't really capturing the essence of what I do with my clients. When my clients pick up the phone and call me, they don't say to me, we'd like you to come and moderate a conversation. They say to me, there's a strategic objective that we're trying to hit. How can you help us using conversation to get that done? And so I realized that actually my work is in the special place where conversation and strategy meet. And that what I do is not just an art, it's a science. Because I think conversations are a strategic tool. And I think one of the biggest things that we're missing in our leadership toolkit today is what I describe as conversational leadership. The ability to start to nurture and to amplify conversations, because at the end of the day, my core belief is this, conversations are the birthplace of action. And in the absence of conversation, we absolutely get nothing done. So it's a long answer, Mali, but I hope that <laughs> I, was, uh, I could share with you the story of my life as best as I could. Oh, the conversation's birthplace of action. Are you kidding me? You are... <laughs> unbelievable and to your early point on destiny right mm. here you are here you yeah, are we are we okay we are going to get to personal life in a bit um you know as you go through it it just the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle fit together you talk about where you kind of denied it a little bit but along the way um talk about whether there was a lot of self-doubt or not self-doubt I remember hearing you say in Detroit, you know, kind of failure was not an option for you. So talk mm -hmm. about to what extent, you know, there's kind of an excited energy, there's a nervous energy, like what, you know, just, if you can go back to some of the emotions that propelled you through mm -hmm. this. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's such a fantastic question. So because of my circumstances and where I was coming from, every opportunity was an opportunity that had to be taken and had to be taken in the lifetime of that opportunity. So my husband always says, you know, uh, the opportunity of a lifetime needs to be taken in the lifetime of the opportunity. And that's, you know, it's absolutely aligned to that thinking. And that's why I say that um, failing was not an option for me. I could not go to university and tinker around and, you know, say, do I like this subject or do I not? Um, because I knew that there was no other opportunity to go back. And that's part of that is something I'm having to unlearn now because I do have room to fail now. I do have space to make mistakes. And it's taken me a lot, a long time to give myself the permission to do that. The other thread is that my mother in particular um, raised me and my siblings in such a way that we always believed that we were smart and that we were capable. So one of the things she'd always tease me about, she says, you know, you've got such a big forehead. But you know, the great thing about big foreheads is that if you look at a computer screen back then, we remember we used to have those big computers with the back end. And she says, even if you look at the television, these are all smart things. And so just like you, they're just as smart. That's why you guys all have big foreheads. And I used to you know, get teased about it, but the message was never lost on me that not only am I smart, but I am capable and I'm teachable. 
And my mother used to always, you know, drum that uh, in us to say, there's absolutely nothing that you are incapable of learning how to do. So I grew up with heaps of confidence. Um, and it's interesting that despite that confidence, as you grow up and especially as you get into the corporate space, suddenly you start tuning into narratives that other people might have about people who look like you. And so my, my contention was beginning to hear this narrative that, you know, because she's black or because she's a woman or because she's young and sort of creating self-doubt in my ability. And I think if I didn't have reservoirs of, uh, of self-belief and, and confidence from my upbringing, I might have really not followed through on some of the things that I did. And so I have learned that um, there will be moments where I will experience imposter syndrome and feel like I absolutely don't belong in a particular space. But the big breakthrough for me may, came a couple of years ago, actually, where I realized that there's a saying that says um, um, dogs don't bark at stationary cars. And so in the same way, imposter syndrome is not going to show up if I'm standing stock still. And so every time I start hearing that little voice that says, you know, should you really be here? I go, oh, welcome. It's you. It means I'm making progress. I'm moving in the right direction. Thank you so much. Let's keep it moving. Um, and that's not to say that the voice doesn't creep up, but I have found a way around that voice. And I have constantly sought to remind myself that I am smart, I'm capable, and I'm teachable because that is the foundation that my mother left for me. That is so amazing. And you just demonstrated for all our listeners that power of having the right conversation within our own self. And that's where it yeah. all starts and to be so grounded. Um, Nosey, talk about your siblings and your sibling relationships as you grew up. <laughs> oh, so I come from um, a family of five of us in total. So before my parents got married, they both had a child each. So my father had a son, my mother had a daughter, and then they got married and then they had me and my two sisters. So I grew up as um, literally a firstborn with my two sisters and then later on really developed amazing relationships with my half siblings when you got closer. The impact of that is because I was the oldest and um, I'm, I'm I'm five years older than my middle sister and eight years older than my baby sister. It did mean that I took on a little bit of a deputy parent posture. And for the longest time, I was unconscious to that. And then I realized that my sisters were closer to each other than they were to me. And try as I may, that friendship wasn't extended to me as I'm, as much. And so um, I then realized that I think part of that challenge is because I'm actually not showing up as their friend and as their sister. I'm showing up as a parent. And so I then realized that I needed to change that. And that came through a breakthrough in a facilitation, actually, that I was doing for a client. Somebody shared, you know, the work around the parent-adult-child model. And I realized that, oh, I'm constantly showing up as a parent and therefore cheat, you know, treating my siblings like children. And that's why they're not friends with me. And so I had to unlearn that as well. And um, 
it was a tough journey, but today we are the closest, closest thing that you can imagine. Uh, my little sister actually just got married two days ago. And, you know, it was just the most amazing African extravaganza. But, I, I, you know, our relationship now is so much closer. But I realized that I needed to do the work of, you know, of ensuring that I'm experienced in a way that serves the relationship that I want to have with my sisters. Yeah. The wisdom that I'm hearing from you is just so extraordinary. And if I could bottle it up and just sprinkle it <laughs> on leaders that I know, and they even just take, took five or 10%, it would be a home run. Uh, let's talk about personal life. Mm -hmm. How did you meet your husband? Oh, this is a story. Oh my goodness. I'm so glad he's not on this uh, uh, conversation because he always likes to give his version. And of course, because I'm here, we're going to hear my version. <laughs> But I first met him on television sets, actually. I was doing a special broadcast about uh, South Africa's young political leaders. And at that time, he was actually uh, building the strategy for one of the um, uh, contending political parties in the country, one of the opposition parties. And so he was part of um, the panel of people that were coming through. And I just remember thinking, oh, this guy is too smart. Everything that he's saying is uh, makes too much sense. What I need right now is I need controversy so that more people can lean in and we can get good ratings. So, you know, I really tried to not give him too much airtime because I just thought, oh, he's making too much sense. And, um, I, and then I never saw him again for a, a year um, and a bit. And then after the elections, he and I were both nominated into a leadership fellowship uh, called the Young African Leadership Fellowship. And I met him again. And the story is that I didn't remember him because as a, a broadcaster, you know, I would be interviewing hundreds of people um, in a year. And he was very offended that I didn't remember him because he remembered me. So we um, didn't like each other for, <laughs> for most part of that 18 month uh, fellowship. Um, and um, eventually we found ourselves sitting next to each other one day and we just started talking and then we never stopped. Um, and, you know, we've been married now for about three years. Um, we have our first child together who's seven months old now and has gotten his first two teeth. Um, so that's been really special. But I really count uh, Rory as definitely one of my blessings and one of my superpowers simply because um, he really is probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. And I have met a lot of people. Uh, he's got an incredible mind. Um, and to think that I have access to that every day is really, really um, just such a blessing. I bounce a lot of ideas off him. Um, I bounce a lot of um, thoughts around the things that I'm doing. And so, you know, I just have the best partner and intellectual uh, sparring partner as well, which I think is um, not always there in marriages that I've seen. So the fact that we have it, um, I think is absolutely so special for us. Yeah, it's a meeting of great minds and hearts. Uh, the Being a new mom, how is being a mom? Oh, <laughs> it has been, so firstly, I used to fight with my husband all the time and I used to say to him, 
why is it uh, when I say to you, I love you with my whole heart, you just say, I love you too. You never say to me that you love me with your whole heart. And he's, and he's very sort of practical. And he says, no, it's not possible to love you with my whole heart because I still have to love my mother, my father, my siblings. And I used to say, absolute rubbish. You should be loving me with your whole heart until I had my son. And then I got it. And then I said, no, I cannot love you with my whole heart. I think I probably love my son with my whole heart. It's just this different shift. You know, you find this abundance of love that you didn't know you had and an abundance of patience um, that you never knew that you had. Um, and so my son had been an absolute gift uh, in terms of just um, allowing me to see myself as so full um, and, and of, of not lacking. You know, when he sees my face, um, the absolute excitement that he goes into, just, you know, it just humbles you that somebody can love you so much. So being a mom has been fantastic on that front, but it's come with some real tough uh, footwork because I'm an entrepreneur. I run my own business. I travel all around the world. So, you know, I moderate conversations all around the world. And finding that, uh, and I even hate the word balance, but finding that uh, rhythm, rather, um, of being present for my son and still being present for myself because I love my work and I love who I am on the global stage um, and I don't want to compromise that has been very, very interesting. And so back to your point, Molly, about the internal conversation, I have found that that conversation with myself, um, granting myself permission to go out and do great things in the world and granting myself permission to communicate to my team and the clients that I'm not available. And no, I'm not doing anything great other than being on all fours with my son um, is, also, is also okay. But I feel that if you don't have the courage to really speak to yourself and and really identify for yourself the things that uh, are holding you back and the things that make you feel like you're absolutely flying, you're probably going to find yourself really stuck. So it's an ongoing conversation for me, but um, motherhood has been a beautiful challenge. I'm positively challenged uh, by it. And um, I'm so grateful that God has blessed us with a child. And we really hope that, again, God willing, that we might have another one. Um, and then we see, you know, how much tougher things will get. But it's been great. And it's allowed me to also just reflect on some of the things we say theoretically about um, working mothers. Because now you realize that, you know, um, this is not theory anymore. This is real life. And you get a new appreciation for what works for you and what doesn't. Um, and most of my closest friends, again, just really weirdly, all have kind of had kids at the same time. So my little Dilo is surrounded by other kids who are either two or three months older or younger. And so it's just a big, happy um, family and friends that we're all coming together and having this shared experience together. Ugh so joyful for all of you and <laughs> you know thank you for being so open about the ups and downs and and just yeah. having to make it work i love the rhythm part of this and to your yeah. point very a very personalized journey 
And what I'm just sensing is just such a level of self empowerment. And, you know, this term of empowering others, and we love to empower others, it's really about each of us empowering our own self, right? And at some point, you have that courage to say that this is what I need to do. And, you know, without defiance, but nor without apology, you're able to just do what's right. And to, to be so wholehearted about it, still so relatively, you know, along an amazing journey. It's pretty special, my friend. That's really, really fun. Thank you. I think you've just, you've said something so, so important um, there and in terms of empowering oneself. And, you know, my, my learning so far is that you've got to take your power um, and you've got to guard it jealously because um, if you don't, you actually will feel really disempowered and feel really stuck about what it is that you need to do. And I have found that boundaries are the best thing ever, some good, healthy boundaries. Um, And because what boundaries also do is they teach people how to interact with us. Um, And I have found that I've had to teach people, especially sort of in my close circle to say, Actually, you will not question my my itinerary. Um, you will not question unless I've asked you to come and look after my son. Um, you know how he is while I'm away. Actually, it's not your concern. I've put a system in place, and all of that is fine. And once you realize that people actually like knowing where the boundary is as well, you actually realize it's actually such a great thing. And so. I think it's important what you've said. We don't wait always to be empowered, but we take our power and regard it jealously. And part of taking your power is communicating to people who you are and how you are and how you will be treated, how you will be engaged. And and people will remember and be thankful for you because it also helps them uh, to be clear about what they can and cannot do with and around you. Yes, my friend, you have just summarized that notion of do the work. I heard you say, I'm a big fan of this. And along our journeys, you know, we're getting to know ourselves for who we are our entire lives because we're changing. There's a new me every single day. But we do have these kind of moments of big step change. And that is on Mm. us. And it is not someone else's problem for us to figure out us. And in doing so, sometimes we don't like what we see in the mirror. And that yeah. is okay. And there's something to learn there. And maybe there's something to change and move forward on. And I just really applaud your, you have this innate curiosity without necessarily judging it to be able to say, okay, this is what's going on. And maybe it served me before, but it is no longer serving me. And so I have a choice, yeah. <laughs> right? Be my <laughs> yes. worst enemy or be my best friend and and pick a better way. So I love it. I, I, I get that kicking and screaming most times. Um, I'm not... A- I'm not a huge fan of, of unlearning, but I do it. Like you said, you know, um, I, I go kicking and screaming. But, um, you know, one of the things just on a lighter note that I've had to unlearn is um, uh, my poverty mindset, right? So, you know, I think poverty breeds a scarcity mindset. And so every time, you know, Rory and I would go on a holiday, uh, because I'm also more efficient, I would be the one who would book you know, the holiday and I booked the, the hotel and the flights. And every time we would arrive at the destination, he'd absolutely hate the place because I had obviously gone for the cheapest place with the, you know, the greatest discounts I could find. And 
yeah, 90% of the time, it looks nothing like the picture that they showed us on the brochure. So I've, so, you know, he's fired me from uh, booking holidays uh, for our family because, you know, my poverty mindset gets in the way. Um, and so I'm not allowed to do anything other than just make sure that it's scheduled and, you know, my diary is clear and I'm doing it. So, yes, kicking and screaming, but I'm learning that um, I'm okay now. Um, I'm, not, I'm not poor now. Um, and that I can actually enjoy the fruits of my labor now. But it's, it's hard because you grow up always thinking, what if, you know, what if it runs out? What happens next? But it's so amazing when you have people who hold you accountable to not only your reality now, but to the future you. And they, and they remind you of, you know, how far you've come. And so I've really just increasingly am enjoying the feeling of, of, of abundance in my life and, 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 tr- and trying every day to act and lean into that feeling of abundance instead of scarcity that I started off with. Yeah, you know, it's the what got you here doesn't get you there. And that ability to do it, like you said, unlearning is hard. And one's relationship with money, you know, I do think that's one of the things that, um, <laughs> yes. you know, it's got, there's a boxing match going on. I can feel it. Uh, we could go on and on about uh, your work. I want to make sure we spend a little time on that. Um, so, you know, you started this, this moderating thing, and you just felt it in your belly. So just share with listeners a bit about like, the different things that you do and, you know, you're known for this, you know, very relevant, very meaningful. You ask these provocative questions, you know, h- how have you groomed your business, I guess, as an entrepreneur, just to give mm-hmm. us a little bit of, of a uh, backstory on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, starting the business um, in the early days, I was happy with the fact that it's a small business, you know, I'm the delivery person and um, I've got a very small team um, that just enables me to do what I do. So, you know, somebody in social media, somebody in the accounting space, somebody to manage the diary. And like all entrepreneurs, I think we start going, oh, I want to grow my business. So I've made some mistakes along the way where I've said, okay, fine, I'm going to train other people to be able to do what I do um, and, you know, put investments behind trying to do that. And the feedback from my clients were, what are you doing? And I said, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to grow the business. Isn't this what we're supposed to do? And one of my clients took me out for coffee and she said, listen, I'm going to break this down for you simply. She said, you're like a surgeon. Um, and if I'm not well and you're my doctor and we are journeying together, you're the person I want to see at the surgical table. I don't want to see somebody else when, it, it, when it's high stakes delivery. So whatever growing your business looks like, we still want you at the end of the day. And that for me was really sobering because it then made me ask different questions, which were, how does Oprah run her business? There's only one Oprah in the world, as an example. She doesn't try to replicate herself in 17 different ways. And so it made me curious about these single, single person entities and how they actually work and how they actually run. Um, and that's what I've tried to model my business around to say, how do I surround myself with people that enable me to do the best work that I can do? And how do I build a business that allows me to do um, high value, low volume work? So 
what are the few things that are going to be high impact that I can do in a year uh, of conversations rather than chasing volume and trying to be everywhere all at the same time. And it's a work in progress. Um, we still are working with it because you can imagine that sometimes I get in my own way. Um, one, because again, I, I, I like the idea of you know seeing revenue coming in because again of some of my stuff that comes through. But the other way that I get in my own way is that I love what I do. So I don't want to say no to anything. Um, and so, you know, my husband and I were just watching the David Beckham um, documentary that's just been live on Netflix recently in South Africa. And one of the things that David Beckham's father talks about is that David would kick a ball 1,300 times per day as part of his practice as a seven-year-old. And I look at that and I go, of course, because that's what it takes to be that good. Um, and so, you know, for me, um, I think part of how I get better at my business is I just do the things that I love doing anyway. So I do get in my own way. I do take on too much work sometimes, but it is, you know, it's a beautiful work in progress. Um, I love being busy. I love being consumed by the things that my clients are trying to solve for through conversations. And it's a business that I know is just a platform that allows me to live my God-given gift. And so I'm not going to build a, a, a conglomerate. It's not going to be you know, a massive business out there, but it's going to be a business that matters uh, for what we do in the world. And maybe my last comment on this is that about maybe two or three years ago, maybe three years ago, I first got introduced to Elliot Kipchoge. So anybody who's a marathon runner will know that Elliot Kipchoge is one of the best marathon runners that come out of Kenya. And he was the first person to run a marathon in under two hours. So you can imagine how fast he was running. And one of the things um, Elliot says when he's asked about what does it mean for him to be um, so good at what he does, his response is, I don't care about um, being the best in the world. What I care about is how I become the best for the world. And I have never lost sight of that. And I hold that with such care because I feel that through my business, I really am not trying to build a business that's the best in the world, that's the biggest. I'm trying to build something that allows me to go and be the best for the world. And I felt that that shift in focus has allowed me to really stay true to our why. Um, and that, of course, that conversations are the birthplace of action. And so we're going to go where action is required. And we're going to bring the best that conversation can offer in those, in those particular spaces. And we're going to engage in those spaces with both humility and will. So humility in the sense of always taking the back seat to enable to be a conduit for the voices of our clients, but will with, with a strong will to make sure that we're not participating in talk shops, that we're not um, 
doing performative conversations and being very intentional about pushing hard at the boundaries so that every conversation that we are part of, even if the breakthrough is not visible in that particular moment, but we leave that conversation with a new question. Because I think that our fixation as human beings sometimes is we want to finish things off neatly and beautifully. And we want to arrive at um, a, a conclusion whose time sometimes has not come. Um, and maybe the biggest gift sometimes that we can give ourselves is to leave ourselves with new questions. And for us, those are the most impactful conversations. And that's and that's all my business is trying to do. Um, and, you know, it might be a business today. It might be another vehicle tomorrow. I When people say, oh, you're, you're an entrepreneur, I always look at that identity and go, oh, that's interesting. I, I don't know how I feel about being an entrepreneur. All I know is that I'm just doing the work of conversations. And if it's in an entrepreneurial platform, then that's great. It just want to pack it, package it with a bow <laughs> and give it to everyone. So folks, uh, so we don't forget the website is theconversationstrategist.com. Um, all across social media, please follow at the real nosy, N-O-Z-I. Okay, folks, uh, we can go on and on. Let me ask, and you've done so much already, but do you have a most proud accomplishment to date? I actually do. Um, and I have two things. The first thing that I'm most proud of is that I was able to pay for my mother to finish school and go to university. So at the age of 50, my mother went back to school. And at 54, she graduated as a teacher. And she used to always say to me that she feels that God would always destine her to be a professional. And the fact that I could contribute to that is probably the most important thing I feel that I could have ever done. The second thing that I think I'm really proud of is probably um, giving birth to a perfect human being. <laughs> I, think I think making humans is a big deal. Um, and I, I think, you know, being able to make a human um, and, and to deliver a human is a pretty great accomplishment. Um, and, you know, I always, when I do talk to moms who are trying to integrate back into work, I always remind them, please do not apologize for having taken the time off or feel that when you need to get back into work, you need to um, catch up. You were busy doing the most important thing for mankind. You were growing humans. Um, and that's what mankind is all about. So I think those are the two most important things that I think I've accomplished in my life. And uh, on to many more. Thank you for that. Okay, a few questions um, in reflection as we wrap. Assuming where you are now, do you have a particular do-over or regret that you would share? I think that my one regret, and it's a conscious do-over for me, is that in all the time, in all the places that I've traveled to, and I've seen a lot of the world. I've always gone in, done the work, and come right out because I've just been so busy. And I haven't seen the world as much as I should have seen the world given how much I've traveled. So the way I'm doing it over now is that whenever I get onto a plane, 
I will ensure that I either build a day before or a day after just to be in the space and to go and see outside of the hotel room, outside of the client's premises, what is this place all about? And so sometimes it means I'm I'm going to have to revisit certain places that I have been to, but it's the one thing that I really regret. And to anybody who gets to travel, don't do it blind. Because I think that's what I did. I was I was traveling blind, not really seeing the places that I was having the privilege to visit. So I'm fixing that. Yeah, those are the things that you quote unquote screwed up. We're doing okay here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're having a chance to redo it. It's all good. Uh, those that you have said, you've shared a lot, and I imagine you're kind of hearing yourself say a lot going down memory lane. Is there a particular top takeaway about your journey that you're you're coming away with? Yeah, I mean, I think this thought has been sort of bubbling under the surface for me for quite a while. Um, I, I often get young people who write to me um, on social media to say, what must I study to become a conversation strategist like you? And I think we have socialized young people to think that what you study determines what you do. And I couldn't disagree more. When I reflect on my academic journey, I had no idea that this is where I would end up and this is what I would do. What I did do is I just used everything that I had learned. So for me, academic experiences are just tools. You're taking tools, uh, you're taking mental models, you're taking ways of understanding, ways of thinking, and you're putting them in your toolbox. And you can go and do anything that you want to do, including becoming a conversation strategist. Um, And I think that really um, my life for me increasingly looks like an ad for not not following a pathway, but creating that pathway yourself and just looking around yourself and going, what do I have in my hands? What can I do with it? And go out and create a reality for yourself and create a different future for yourself and, and for others. Um, the idea that we need to, you know, a lot of people talk about finding your purpose. I'm like, no, no, no. There's, you don't find your purpose. It's not outside somewhere where you have to go and look for it. Your purpose is inside you. You just need to figure out, you know, how do you live into that? And so my biggest thing to to young people when they say that to me is I always say, I think you're asking the wrong question. The question is, have you taken stock of what you have? And have you considered the possibilities of what you can do and be with what you have already? And then just go out and start. That's it. Go out and start. Brilliant. Finally, Nozi, what was it like for you to share your journey with us today? Oh, it was <laughs> such a beautiful gift. Uh, thank you so much. I think sometimes when we um, are given the space to tell our own stories, um, it is one of the most gentlest reminders of how far we've come. And to be able to hear this conversation is a gift for me because it is a reminder that um, we're doing okay. We're doing okay. And I'm so happy that I get to remind myself and the gift of reminding myself that today. 
You are doing a little bit more than okay. I'm just going <laughs> to call that out. Okay. Like the humility is flying across the screen, your courage, your commitment, and your conscience are really, really landing for me, my friend. And I Thank am you. in awe of you. I mean, you are a newfound idol. I'm so, so grateful for our paths crossing, for you so generously sharing today. And as my listeners know, like you are a big part of the solution in this world, right? And you're helping us all be safe, seen, heard, and our true and very, very best selves. Uh, best for the world. I know you're well on your way. If there's any tiny little way I can be the least bit helpful, you know how to reach me. I'm here for you. Um, Nozi, you take good care. Thank you so much for having me, Molly. Okay, folks, it does not get any better. Okay, my thought for the week is none other from Nosy. It is a lyric from Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey that moves her. It's, we were moving mountains long before we knew we could. And that's a wrap, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Nosy's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways. And now I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is solvable. Communities are proving it. And it begins by understanding that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. The U.S. spends billions each year responding, but it's clear more resources alone aren't enough to solve this complex problem. Community Solutions is a nonprofit working alongside 105 U.S. communities, proving it is possible to make homelessness rare and brief, starting with veteran and chronic homelessness. These cities and counties are fundamentally changing their approach and have committed to get to zero homelessness using real-time, person-specific data to work and use their resources wisely. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org. See if your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name and need? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness can't be solved. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 